This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I understand you have some new members of the family. <laughs> you want to call them that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I am now the proud mother, and I say that in an almost literal sense of four goslings, geese, baby geese. And this is proof positive that I cannot be trusted to leave the house alone. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, we've we've talked a little bit about how I'm in a transitory state after the big Well, I mean, you know, a couple weeks ago we talked for a while about my garden about gardening yeah so yeah. now now you've moved on from gardening and now you're just oh, raising no. geese no 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 i'm still totally doing the gardening thing but i've i've wanted geese for a long 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 time and um and they were there in the store when i went to go get dog food and so i i just was like i tried to walk away and then i was like no i'm gonna hate myself if i don't do this so I got them. But the thing is, with geese, unlike ducks, see, the ducks need to have water. You can't really, and they're super, super messy. Geese are like goats with wings. They eat grass, but they'll also eat any anything else that's green. They just nibble and nibble and nibble. But they're also, like, very noisy and aggressive and territorial. And I've wanted them for a long time just because... Where the chickens are, there's hawks and other predators, and the dogs will can keep like the coyotes away, but they don't do that great of a job for hawks or you know other things. And I was like, well, the geese will keep the lawn mode and scream at people, and they're not very friendly if they don't know you. So, but then it's like, well, what do I do? Because I I don't even have a home that I'm anywhere at one time. You know, I'm constantly, I'm here, I'm there. So right now they live in a tub, <laughs> and they come with me wherever I go. And the reason is that, um, so geese imprint, right? If you if you raise them, as, if they see you as their, their mom, then you're their mom. That's it. They were all, they're always going to love you and they're not going to be aggressive towards you. And if you raise them with siblings, then they also imprint on those siblings. And so they don't get so pissed off and offended when mom decides to make them go live outside. So that was the goal of having more than one is that they could bond with each other. But then I'm hand raising them so that they don't attack me when I walk out the door or any of the other people that will walk out the door. Um, So... It's been, they're so entertaining. Oh my God, they're hilarious. You could watch them like you're watching TV. Um, and But it's it's my first time having them. I, I've raised turkeys and chickens and guineas, but I've never done geese or ducks. So this is all new and it's fun. And it doesn't, it's not like it's super time consuming or anything. It's just keeping, keeping up after them, taking them outside, giving them a bath. But, you know, 
you do that with other pets to to an extent. So, but yeah, that's that's a new new little development, and I'm just waiting until it gets warm enough so they can go live outside. And then once they're big enough that I don't have to worry about, you know, them getting hauled off by something, then I will turn them loose and they can go live under the trees and eat the grass and scare things. Now, you know, I, it occurs to me that as authors, we sometimes like to have our characters have these unusual quirks. <laughs> are, are you saying that liking to have geese's pets is an unusual quirk? I'm saying that you're flipping the script and the person who writes the characters is developing some unusual quirks. <laughs> it's not quirky. I apparently have a thing for farm animals. <laughs> and thankfully a place to put them when they don't have to live in my bathtub. Um <laughs> But you still live in the suburbs, right? Well, I don't. I don't have a home. I'm. I'm transient right now. I'm borrowing people's. I'm. I'm living in a room in the suburb in somebody else's house. But I go out into the country. Um, I spend as much time there now as I do. So there's going to be a time where I move out of the suburbs completely. But I just haven't got all my duck, my geese in a row yet. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Nicely done. Today's topic, which has a little bit of backstory to it is I'm going to present an example of how to develop character in a plot-driven novel. How did you find material for this, Taylor? I'm really curious. Okay, so here's the background. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This example that I'm going to take is from The Informationist, and I can't remember if I've mentioned it here. I think I have, but I'm I'm reading The Informationist now for the first time as a reader, and it's it's been a really interesting experience. So I've been sort of book club blogging about it on posts that I've been putting up on Patreon. And for those of you who are either new here or haven't kept up with that side of the conversation, these book club posts on Patreon, Patreon is sort of like a, a paywall. Like, it's for people who... Um, love me and want to keep the show going, who want me to keep writing um, and value what I do as and the, and the material that I'm providing as more than just free. Like they, they actually want to, ha- to show their appreciation. And so they're, you know, different people pledge at different levels. Some people it's a dollar a month. Some people it's three dollars a month. We have some some uh, patrons who are incredibly gener- generous. Um, so it, it creates a sort of a privacy fence there. So these book club posts, they are free. You don't have to pledge anything or be a paying subscriber, so to speak, to view them. But because they're kind of just verbal vomit, um, and it's not something I want to just go out onto the internet and show up out of context in random places, I put them on Patreon to get them behind that paywall. So anybody can access them, but you have to have a Patreon account to do it. And most people, only the people who are really interested enough are going to take the effort to to make that Patreon account. So that's where the privacy aspect comes in. But I should add, it only takes about a minute to set up one of those accounts. You don't have to give any credit card information. You need your name and email address. And there's even a Patreon app that notifies you. So you don't even have to go log in anywhere to see these posts. So if you want to follow the book club stuff, that's where you go to get it. It's patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. But anyway, with reading The Informationist, it is impossible 
for me to read my own work without viewing it critically, like from a writing perspective. And I try really, really hard to be forgiving of myself. You know, I, I know, like I learned to write while writing The Informationist and I just kind of been winging it ever since. So I'm aware of how little experience I had, but it's really not always easy to be forgiven, uh, forgiving of myself. But Every once in a while, I'll come across what I find to be something that's pretty well done. I mean, you know, considering where I was at with that. And that I have found. Considering that it was a mega best-selling book. Yeah, but it wasn't a best-selling book because of the writing. It was the story and the, the timing and how different it was from anything else. And but But what I've been finding out is that the upside to the actual material being rougher than how I would like to see it is that when I come across a piece, like the piece that I want to use today, which is this example of how to develop character in a plot-driven novel by using like character emotional responses as the foundation for the plot, the fact that this scene was crafted by unskilled hands, it makes it a lot easier to separate the storytelling and the structure from the actual writing. So it, it's easier to break it down than if it was done by somebody who actually knew what they were doing. Because right now, the way that I write, the, the actual craft of writing is so intertwined with the story that it's you, you can't just say, hey, ignore the writing, right? But here you can. And so it's actually really beneficial, I think, as, as a teaching, to teach with, right? So what we have here is roughly a thousand words from the informationist. If you have a copy of the book, then you can check out the source material for yourself. It takes place in chapter 15. And if you haven't read the book, then my apologies. This is going to be full of spoilers, and there's just no way to get around that. So a little background for those, before we get into reading this, for people who aren't familiar with the story, um, what we're, here's the characters, here's the setup, here's about what we're going to get into. So we have Vanessa Michael Monroe, who's the protagonist. We have Francisco Bayard, who's a man from her past that she used to work for, and he cares about her really deeply, but there's a lot of real serious baggage between them because of things that happen in that past. And those things get explored as the story progresses. You just need to know that they exist. And we have George Wheel, who is uh, Francisco Bayard's right-hand man. So Francisco Bayard and George Wheel are gun runners, among other things. And this scene that we're going to read, it takes place on the ship that they use as their home base while they're at sea. And it chronologically, it takes place right after Monroe and Francisco Bayard were nearly executed on the mainland and had to make a run for their lives. So from a pure plotting perspective, right, this story, where we go from here, it has to take Monroe back to the mainland. And that, the, the very fact that the plot is going to require her to go back to the mainland, um, it's going to create two separate but similar issues. And these are going to be issues that are going to be very familiar to anyone who is a plotter. Or even somebody who's writing organically and is trying to figure out how to, they, they kind of know where the next step needs to go and they haven't, haven't really kind of figured out how to make that happen organically. So the, the two issues you can, we're going to come up against, we would come up against, are shallowness 
and the second is contrivance. So when you have something that needs to happen, you you can explain it in a way that makes sense and doesn't feel contrived, but it feels shallow. Like it, it, it yeah, okay, that that kind of works, but you don't have that real sense of richness to it, right? So in this particular instance, Monroe has already technically been released from her contract. So if she goes back to the mainland, there's a real, very real possibility that she's going to wind up dead. Now, the plot's requiring her to go back, but from a character perspective, why would she do that? She's not under contract, and she, she's very real possibility she's going to end up dead. And so if she does it just because the plot requires that she does it, this whole thing's going to feel contrived. And that is what we see a lot in as, as writers haven't really fully figured out how to develop this side of storytelling. We see those contrivances come up. You sometimes see them in published novels as well, where um, either the author didn't think through the same things that the reader was thinking through or the editor didn't spot it or whatever the reasons, right? It's just like the plot needed to happen. So it happened. So that is easier to fix. But the second is, if she does this, if she goes back to the mainland for sort of general, moral, lofty reasons, right? And that, those general moral reasons, those lofty reasons, that's what you actually find trying to resolve these sorts of contrivances. You see a lot of that in thrillers where the characters are doing things because the plot needs them to, and the author's trying to avoid that contrivance, but they don't really go deep into the reasons. They don't go deep enough. And so it's like, it has to do with who they are as a character. Like, I, I just can't walk away from this. I just can't leave that person to die. Or, you know, just it's, it's these very umbrella-ish type moral calls of the character where they they do things and because it doesn't go deeper that it doesn't really fully make sense i mean you get it but you don't and that's what i call shallowness it's not trying to say that the character is shallow it's that the explanation doesn't go deep and so when you read something that has that shallowness to it and again not shallow is in superficial or frivolous but shallow is in not taking it as far as it could be taken then for the reader, you're going to feel like you've read it a dozen times before. So the, it's not that it feels contrived. It just feels you've seen it. it, you've, it this is not new. This is, and, then, and when you start feeling like it's not new, you sort of, it doesn't capture you the way it would if it's something that, that really gets you into the nitty-gritty of character motivation and stuff. So this plot, where we are now, also needs Francisco Bayard to go with Monroe. So that's also a plot thing where we're, we're moving in that direction, right? But for Bayard to go simply because the plot requires it is going to feel even more contrived than Monroe doing that because he's got even less invested in going back than Monroe does. And even more shallow, it'll be even more shallow if his reasons aren't even deeper and more authentic. So 
we're we're going to get into this. I promise. We're going to read this, but I'm I'm laying out all these things so that as we do read it, you've already got this in your head, and we don't have to go back and read it three or four times to point stuff out. So, in light of that, one thing that this scene doesn't do is answer Bayard's half of that equation. That equation, and that's because his motivations were already established in the previous chapter. Monroe threatened to kill him, and most definitely would have if he hadn't been forthcoming with what she wanted to know, because he hasn't been being honest with her. He's been wasting her time. He's been dragging this whole thing out by withholding information. And because of that, they nearly ended up dead. Now, he has motivation to want to hurt her. So nine years ago, she vanished on him, just up and left. And he didn't know if she was alive or dead, and he spent months trying to find out what happened to her, and he finally tracked her to where she boarded a ship and left the country, and that's how he knew she was alive, and they have not spoken since, they've had no communication, and all of a sudden she shows back up out of the blue asking for his help. So he's definitely conflicted, and she trusts him, and she doesn't. And from his perspective, when this is over, and her job here is done, she's going to leave. And so he really hasn't been in any hurry to speed this assignment along, which is why he's been dragging things out, because once she's gone, she's gone. And so now that he's been called on that and, you know, she's threatened to put a bullet in his head, the only way he's going to get a chance to end this on his terms with her is if he goes along with her and doesn't let her just go off and he'll never see her again. So the reader already knows all of that by the time they get to this section we're going to read. So it's not expressed here, but you'll understand where it shows up when he later says, I have my reasons. So those are the reasons. And, and I have to point that out because I just went on this big, long lecture about motivations and whatever. So the third character in this scene is George Wheel. And the plot does not care about George Wheel. He's not going with them to the mainland, and he only shows up another time or two in this story. So he's really what could fall into the role of what gamers would call non-player characters, just like the equivalent, the fictional equivalent of a computer-generated character that exists to serve a specific moment in the storyline or convey information and nothing more, right? So in fiction, when the plot doesn't care about what happens to a character, that's when the author is at the greatest risk of letting that character come across as this non-player character equivalent. Because if the plot doesn't care, then the author doesn't have to ensure that what happens to that character feels real and not contrived and all the other things that go into making sure character choices feel authentic, right? So of all these characters here in this scene, George Wheel is actually the one that could create the most uh, room for messing it up, right? So when you have a character in fiction that feels like a non-player character equivalent or whatever, they're going to take on this sense of being wooden, contrived, shallow. And so George Wheel presents a completely opposite challenge in this scene than Vanessa Monroe and Francisco Bayard. So I'm about to read this. I have never read my own work like this. This is 
disclaimer, this is not a good example of writing, okay? This is not a good, this is a horrible example of dialogue, but we're using this as an example for character emotion and how to use that as the impetus, the foundation to build a plot. So here, here goes. Before we get started, I'm <laughs> going to do what lots of other listeners are going to do as well, which is pause this and go and get their book. So we will, through the magic of editing, <laughs> make this really short, but I'm going to go get my book and figure out exactly where you're reading from. So hang on a sec. Okay, so we are on page 202, that's 202 of the hardcover version. It is the second sentence in the last paragraph on that page. Okay, deep breaths, ward off panic attacks here. All right, for Wheel's benefit, Bayard summarized the events that had brought them back to the ship. He spoke in English, and even with his lack of fluency was descriptive in the telling of it, although his version neatly left out all mention of the guest house from the moment the pistol had been placed to his head. When he was finished, they sat in silence. There was no need to say what they were all thinking. The minutes passed slowly and were emphasized by the regular ticks of the radar scope that filled the quiet. Bayard bit on the edge of his thumb, wheel tapped a pen against the table, and Monroe sat with her head kicked back and her legs stretched out. Wheel was the first to speak. I want to know what happens next. He turned to Monroe. You know that if you go back in, you're playing against terrible odds. It's a high-risk venture, the stakes being your life. And he paused and nodded at Bayard. More important, as far as I'm concerned, Francisco's, if he decides to go with you. Is what you're after worth that much? Monroe tapped her fingers against the table, a steady Morse rhythm, and then nodded almost imperceptibly in answer to Wheel's question. Yes and no, she said. I'm willing to put my life up against it. I'm not willing to put up Francisco's or anyone else's for that matter. It's a decision he has to make for himself, but I've got to go back in regardless. Wheel rested his forearm on the table. Listen, he said, we're all a little nuts to be in this business, a little fucked in the head, a little short on fear. I don't give a rat's ass that you've got a death wish, but what you're setting out to do is suicidal, and that's where I draw the line. Not because of you. Go fucking die. I don't care. Wheel nodded again toward Bayard. My job is to keep him out of trouble, and you, he pointed at Monroe, are trouble. Oh, how sweet, she said with the high pitch of patronization. You're playing daddy. Does Francisco get grounded if he breaks curfew? Predictably, Wheel eased back from the table, straightened and crossed his arms. Outwardly, Monroe's face was placid. Inside, she was amused. He had an eight-inch, hundred-pound advantage, and his was the posture of an alpha male adept at intimidation. She'd taken on guys his size before, and what she lacked in bulk and strength she more than made up for in speed and agility. In another time, in another place, the challenge would have been more than welcome. She would have continued to provoke him until he exploded, then, and like lightning, would have gone up over the table, and the pain from the ensuing fight would have been cathartic, but not here. I can't give you what you want, she said. The status quo has already been disrupted, and even if I walk away, nobody, especially not you or me, has the power to put things back the way they were. I don't want to see what you have here ruined any more than you do, but it's out of your hands now. You know that. If I'm going to lose my friend, I'd like to know it's fucking worth it. 
I have no answers for you, George. It's possible we'll wind up a couple of decomposing bodies in a ditch. It would be tragic and considering statistical probability long overdue. Yes, I could walk away and guarantee myself a few more days, but for what? So this can haunt me for the rest of my life? No thanks. Whether I want it or not, I'm locked in. I'd also like to get my hands on the bastard who wants me dead. And there's the issue of Emily Burbank. If she really is alive, I need to find her, out of principle, and to fulfill a promise I made to a mother in Europe. She turned to Bayard. I appreciate what you've done for me, and I really don't expect you to accompany me. But I am going back, and when I start setting things in motion, it would be helpful to know what you're planning to do. Bayard, who had been silent throughout the exchange, with his arms crossed and his chin on his chest, raised his eyes and said, Do you even have to ask? Wheeling forward into Bayard's line of sight, this thing is worth your life? Bayard let out a snort. You know me better than that. Then why the hell go? Bayard sat back and wrapped an arm over the chair. I have my reasons. Wheel stood and placed his hands on the table, leaning down so that his head was almost level with Bayard's. This is fucked up, Francisco. You know it's fucked up. You're risking everything we've had. Seven years of friendship. Wheel snapped his fingers. Seven years of partnership. For what? When Bayard said nothing, Wheel walked toward the door. The two of you can sort it out. This is insane, and I want no part of it. When Wheel had left the room, Bayard said, I've crossed the Rubicon. You can still change your mind. Bayard rested his table, elbows on the table and placed his chin against his folded hands. No, he said, regardless of how events play out, there's no going back. Monroe put her feet on the table and tilted back in the chair. All right, then, she said. We're going in again, and this time we do it my way. The look of concerned sadness that had been on Bayard's face opened into a smile of amusement, but he said nothing. Monroe ignored what that smile implied. War was a boys' club that she'd infiltrated long ago, and he, like so many others before him, would figure it out eventually. Can I just say how cool that was <laughs> to listen to you read that? And you did a great job, by the way. And we shall speak no more of it. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. It was really fun. Okay. So now back to the teaching. Here. Yes. So what makes this scene work the way it does is that it uses wheel, the character the plot doesn't care about, as the one who drives the tension and the interpersonal conflict. So he's not just a foil or a third party asking straightforward or what I call interrog interrogatory, I cannot pronounce it for the life of me, interrogatory questions to provide space for the quote unquote real characters to lay out their motivation and announce their plot or intentions. So as an aside, third party interrogation is a really easy trap for new authors to fall into, and maybe even some old hands. And you see it show up when the author has information they need to convey to the reader and doesn't know how to get it across. So in a scene like this, for example, where you have two characters who already have a mutual understanding, the author can't, shouldn't, have one outwardly, verbally speak the information to the other, because that's basically stating to another character, what that character already knows um, and what's already obvious to the both of them. The only one that doesn't know it is the reader, right? So doing it that way is basically infantilizing both the character that's being spoken to and the reader. So that's why we don't 
we we don't do that. We don't have we don't use spoken dialogue to state the obvious that something to tell a character something he already knows just to inform the reader. If you're going to do that, you have to be very clever about it in a way that, you know, for example, that other character will say, yeah, I already know that. Why are you telling me that? Or something along the lines that doesn't come across as so smack in your face. Here, dear reader, you need to know this. And one of the main ways that authors will avoid that is introducing a third party. Or if it's only two characters, I still call it a third party. It's a disinterested party, right? Or whatever. It's a character that doesn't know what's going on so that the main character or characters have a legitimate reason to explain or recap or highlight to the reader something the reader doesn't know. Now, using a third party to convey that information is a very legitimate part of storytelling. That's why almost all protagonists have sidekicks. Um, it gets very, very boring when you're only with a single character and only inside that character's head for extreme lengths of time. And often that character will end up having to go on monologues to explain to the reader things, whatever. So having that, that sidekick, that other person who doesn't know, third party, whatever you want to call it, is a way to to break up that monotony and be able to show the story to the reader and by informing another character. And in The Informationist, Miles Bradford plays that third-party role quite a bit in the earlier chapters. It provides the mechanism for Monroe to explain to the reader this very strange, unusual environment they're in. So using a third party isn't the issue. The issue is when that third party sort of acts as a, a non-role-playing character. They, they start asking questions like an interviewer. So then what happened? Well, what about this? Very straightforward, if this, then, then type questioning um, because the author's trying to find a way to explain these things. And the only real legitimate reason to do that is if the author's trying to figure it out themselves. And those, those straightforward questions can become placeholders. And then you go back and you completely rewrite the question in a way that provides the same opportunity, but you already know what the answer is now, so you can get to it in a more clever way that doesn't feel so cheap, right? So the having this third party is totally legitimate, but we don't want to have that have them just like ask these interrogatory questions um, without any personal investment with what's going on. And that's really key is when you see these conversations it take place, this dialogue take place in um, works that are unpolished, you really feel as if the person who's doing the asking has no personal investment in what those answers are. The, they could ask a question and the main character could say, yeah, and I just murdered somebody, and it would make no difference. They just go on and ask the next question to get the next round of information, right? That's what a non-role-playing character is going to feel like, and that's what the risk is with a character like George Wheel, where the, the plot does not care what happens to him, right? So returning back specifically to George Wheel in this particular scene and, and what it is that makes this scene feel real and alive is that George Wheel goes beyond that limited role. It's very clear he doesn't like Monroe. 
that means he has a personal investment. He he has even if he even though he's not a lead character, he really is just a sidekick. He really is there just to fill a role in this story. He is given a personal investment in what happens. He doesn't like Monroe. He respects her and he accepts that she's part of Bayard's past, but he doesn't want her there. He views her as dangerous to Bayard's well-being. So for him, what Monroe is planning to do is just as threatening to his personal self as to someone trying to kill Monroe is threatening to Monroe, right? He's he's reacting to this, right? And he becomes very heated about it. So much so that he becomes an antagonist to the plot itself. And what that does within this little scene is it forces these quote unquote real characters to defend their decisions to the reader. Rather than just lay them out in nice clean lines, they're being forced to defend why they're doing what they're doing. And by forcing them to defend their decision, it's it's creating and adding these deeper layers of emotional conflict between them all in a way that makes each individual person's conflict feel real and unique. So again, the writing itself wasn't maybe executed as cleanly or as deftly as it could have been there to, to get all of that across. There are a lot of tweaks I'd make now that would have strengthened that emotional component that would clean up some of the muddiness and how the characters truly feel about things. But I didn't know any of this on an intellectual or analytical level when I was writing it. This scene was crafted entirely out of instinct for sort of this innate story sense was telling me that this had to happen for the story to make sense. So the very fact that it was crafted on instinct that makes my current writer self really admire the baby writer self for being able to pull it off, even if it wasn't done as cleanly as I could do it today. So the whole uh, lesson, I guess, in reading that piece and, and analyzing it is to show that this scene basically is, a, is plot, right? It's plot basically showing what's about to happen it's laying the groundwork for what comes next and how, but it is built entirely on a foundation of character development. It's built entirely through character, the emotional reactions, the motivations, the reasons. And that, because when you're writing a thriller, especially you have so little room to work with character and to develop character because everything has to be, it's plot driven, it's story driven, that's how you develop character in a plot-driven story. This is that's it's a perfect example of how it can be done. I'm not saying it is the perfect way to do it, but it is a really great example of how it can be done by taking the emotional lives of these individual characters and throwing them together into conflict. And through that conflict, it becomes the foundation for laying out the plot. And I cannot find a better way to explain it. I feel like I'm choking on my words um, and repeating myself because I understand it in my head. <laughs> I'm struggling to find a way to articulate it. So that's what I've got. And that makes, I, 
I, I think it was very clear, and it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm not going to ask you the impossible question of what were you thinking when you did this. So I'll, I will, because this was, what, 15 years ago, maybe, when you wrote that scene? Initially, uh, the first it's draft? Through, maybe 2009. No, no, no. First draft would have been like, what, 2006 or seven? Yeah. A long time ago. A while ago. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's just use me as an example. Okay. If I were writing a scene like this, I would, I would, Wheel would be much more of a stick man. And there are probably a lot of people out there in the same situation where you've got, you know, the stick man character that's asking the questions that need to be asked. And as we're reading through and we realize what we've got here is a stick man, how involved is it to wrap all of this? Because to a certain extent, his motivations are self-contained in this scene. I mean, you've described him as maybe showing up one or two other places in the book. So... For our perspective, is it possible to just kind of create this character out of whole cloth, whole cloth as a way of really allowing the scene to sing the way yours did? Or does that, is that something that needs to be done ahead of time before you're even working through the scene? Um, you can do it right then and there, which is how – I mean, you said you were going to ask me the impossible no, question. No, I was not going but, to ask you No, not going to ask question. me, but I'm going to answer it on the next show because I've got a follow-up to this and I actually go there (laughs) with that in in mind. So we will touch on that, but I can tell you that um, I'm a plotter now, but I was not when I wrote The Informationist. I was entirely making it up as I went along. And so until George Wheel showed up on the page the first time, he did not exist. And so every time he did show up, uh, more of his, um, who he was also showed up. We know in the story a little bit about where he came from. We, we know that he's former special forces. We, in his words, he tells Monroe that uh, he's a guy who likes to make things go boom and Francisco needed somebody who could make things go boom. So they were a perfect fit. And we don't know if he has a family. We don't know where he's from in the United States. There's so much about him we don't know. But we do know how he feels about Francisco and Monroe. And that's what really matters in this scene and and what makes him an antagonist to the plot. So he's not a fully developed character in the sense that we know everything there is to know about him. I don't know those things. I didn't need to. But we know everything there is to know about who he is in this moment right here, right now. And I don't know if that answers your question. Well, between that answer and and what you're going to give us next week, I'm assuming that my question is going to be fully answered. Well, within what I just answered, how much is left hanging? (laughs) Not a lot. (laughs) Okay. I'm like, oh dear, I'm going to get to next week and completely flub it. And then we'll have to like go back and rediscuss it. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. We ran a little bit long this week, but uh, this was a fun show and uh, very informative. I can't wait for the follow-up next week. So thank you guys for listening and we will talk to you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here and see you next week.